this is not a get out the vote episode. It's too late for that. And that doesn't seem to be necessary anyway. Turnout is not going to be a problem this year. We already know that. Record numbers of people are voting. In some places, early voting has already eclipsed turnout in all of 2016, which is incredible. And generally speaking, high turnout is good for progressives. That's just like a rule of thumb. High turnout is good for progressives, period. Although right now, in our area, it seems like turnout in rural spots is eclipsing turnout in urban spots, which is weird and alarming. But again, we're so close to election day, there's not much we can do about that now. Especially, I suspect, if you're someone who listens to this show, without knowing every single person who listens to this lengthy, nerdy podcast about politics and culture in the Inland Northwest, I feel relatively comfortable saying that most of the people who are hearing this right now before the election have probably already voted. If you somehow haven't, holy shit, go vote, man. If you haven't voted yet, but you still listen to this show, I mean, come on, go do that right now, you weirdos. Honestly, like pause this podcast right now, clap, 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 slide into your best jeggings and drive directly to the STA Plaza or the Perry Street Library or your closest county ballot drop-off location. Do not drop it in the mail. It's too late for that. And vote for goodness sake. Pause this. Focus. Do not podcast and drive. We'll be waiting for you when you get back. Okay? We're waiting. Done? (sighs) Okay, good. So like I was saying, this is not a get out the vote episode. This is more of a what to expect when you're expecting dot 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 a right wing coup episode. It's a what to expect when you're expecting dot 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 a large scale delegitimization of the democratic process episode. What to expect, and I I won't torture this metaphor much longer, I promise. Uh, Let's see here. What to expect... For those of you who are old enough to remember the year 2000, what to expect if you're expecting a Brooks Brothers riot, except it's nationwide, and instead of lawyers and business bros in suits, it's some other kind of bro in Hawaiian shirts and Fred Perry polos, and maybe tiki torches, who knows. That might be too deep of a cut and too weird of a cut, but that's actually what today's guest is here to discuss. And sorry, I'm going to interrupt myself right now to say that if this feels like, oh, Luke, you're being an alarmist, oh, Luke, you are being a snowflake about this, you are exaggerating the concern, my wife, my wife, my wife who is not white, but has lived as a non-white person her entire life in Spokane, and has therefore built up a pretty healthy tolerance for racist bullshit, sent me an image of a parade, a Trump caravan, blocks from our house two days before the election, and all of a sudden I'm worried about her safety, the safety of everyone around me. And so, yeah, this absolutely is happening here. And of course we know that, but it's just a reminder, right? We can feel insulated for those of us who live in the cloistered bubble of the uh, you know 10 or 20 block radius emanating from say, Riverfront Park. But like Jess Walter says, you're never more than two blocks from a bad neighborhood in Spokane. You're also never more than a few miles from a person or people who may or may not be planning an overthrow of the government. So there we are. That's where we are. And so today, this got a lot less fun as I was recording this. Holy shit. Sorry, I'm just going to take a second. (sighs) So today we're going to talk to Kate Bitts, a person who I think is among, if not the best person to talk about the state of extremism in the Northwest, how it relates to, you know, plans, however concrete, to disrupt democracy or just cause turmoil before or after or during the election in a couple days. And I'll get to the bio in a second. But what you'll get is someone who's spent the last, I don't know, year, couple years three years, very intensely studying these groups as her like job. For some of us sickos, it's like a hobby. (laughs) 
<laughs> yours truly included, for Kate, it's a job to study these groups and study the history in this area specifically. And so what you'll get is a very deep and very nuanced understanding of right-wing culture in this area, specifically efforts to disrupt democracy from such groups. What you will not get, unfortunately, but truthfully and honestly, is someone who's going to say, hey, this is exactly what's going to happen. Here's exactly what to look out for, because no one knows, in all honesty, period. It's a fascinating interview, though, and one that's sort of timely anytime from, say, the Ruby Ridge standoff till now, or even a little bit before that, say even the founding of the Oregon Territory to now, it would be a timely conversation because our region, like the rest of the country, was built on white supremacy and marketed as such and continues to this day to be a bastion, a magnet of people who are looking to entrench and reinforce the power of whiteness. But it's especially pertinent now as we're going into what will be absolutely a decisive day in the history of America tomorrow. Well, it, let's say a decisive month because we we're not going to know the outcome of the election on election day. Not that we ever do, despite what the networks tell us, but especially now because we're going to have all these votes to count. There's going to be a fight to sort of call the election on election day by certain groups and a, a fight to say like, no, 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 no. We're going to count all the votes, y'all which is where the allusion to the Brooks Brothers riot comes in. We've got to fight. We're going to have to fight to make sure all the votes get counted. But then, sorry, if this sucks, it does suck. The battle's not over on election day or election month. We're not, the battle's not over when we know who won the election. And not just because we have a uh, commander-in-chief who may try to stay in power. But as Kate talks about, if you look at the way these things work historically, efforts to undermine democracy actually get worse under Democratic presidents and Democratic administrations. So uh, too long didn't read. <laughs> if you stop the podcast right now because you're too depressed and you need to go breathe into a bag, the takeaway will be at the end of this hour-long conversation that you should absolutely stick around for because it's amazing. But if you don't, I understand self-care is a thing that is very important. We can only do what we can do. Take care of yourself, sweeties. The TLDR here is going to be Shit might get worse under a Joe Biden presidency because newsflash, for those of you who may have forgotten or were too young to really realize, like me, or were so young you weren't born yet or you were zygotes, that these movements, white separatism, white nationalism, Christian identity, and on and on and on, got worse under the Clinton presidency. Them's just facts. That's just history. So yeah, here we go. Buckle up. That was a long digression. Sorry. Big Luke energy today. Big. <laughs> I, don't, I don't even know. If this episode is range, is Midnight Cowboy, and I'm uh, playing Grizzo. I'm playing Dustin Hoffman's character. You guys are the, uh, what are you? What are you? The, uh, you're the taxi cab that almost runs me over. Saying, get to the point here, Baumgarten. And I'm like, I'm walking here. I'm talking here. Hey, I'm walking here. I'm on a roll. You know what I mean? There's actually a very good chance you might not know, and that's okay. A couple episodes ago, I made a reference to, uh, what was it? I think Zoolander, which felt kind of dated. <laughs> well, this movie uh, came out before I was alive, and a lot of people don't know about it, although it's a classic, classic Midnight Cowboy. But yeah, weird day. It's probably the nicest day of the rest of the year. It is the Sunday before Election Day, November November 1st. Yeah, because yesterday was Halloween. It's a beautiful day. I still have incredibly weird energy, not necessarily good energy. I do feel like I'm being powered by the sun, despite being dragged down by the, uh, the weight of things, for whatever reason. Weird energy. So I'll actually get out of your way and my own way and let Kate take it away with her bio before we launch into this uh, fascinating discussion. You work for an organization called the Western State Center. Can you give me a little bit about that and, uh, and what you do there? Sure. I am a program manager and trainer organizer at 
Western States Center. It is about a 30-year-old progressive organization. Our core region is the Pacific Northwest and the Mountain States, so Idaho and then every other state that touches Idaho. <laughs> that's a really that's a really easy visualization. Yeah. Uh, home base for the organization is Portland. Okay. And a lot of our work right now is around countering white nationalism and defending democracy. So look, your boy doesn't always hit it out of the park with the guests. Actually, you know what? So far, I've been pretty good. I cannot promise that I will always hit it out of the park with timely guests, but this one's pretty good. How good? Well, I'm sure I'll have to apologize to her after this. But the whole time I was talking with her, I was just thinking how perfect it is that she was able to come on and help us better understand this exact moment in history in a way that I'm not sure anybody else really could. Because sometimes there's a person. I won't say a hero, because what's a hero? But sometimes there's a person. And I'm talking about the dude here. Sometimes there's a person. Well, uh, he's the man for his time and place. He fits right in there. And that's Kate Bits coming right up. I'm Luke Baumgarten, and this is Range. Episode 17, Going to Extremes. Hello. Success. <laughs> we made it. <laughs> oh. How are things? Did you get power back pretty quickly on the weekend? Yeah, yeah. We didn't lose power. Our neighbors did, and then they, oh. they shut us off to connect them back up so it was like four hours it wasn't bad we had some friends who lost for like 18 hours how about you is it is the carnage bad down there we were really lucky it sounds like there was power out up on boone and then like a lot of kendall yards lost power for a minute wow. um and there was an avista crew out on saturday because like all of our power is connected uh through the alleyways in the back of the houses oh, yeah, in this totally. part of west central yeah so they were just like going down the row with their little cherry picker and cutting branches that were that were laying on the wires back there totally uh, we but there's there's a tree like a block away that just a third of it just fell down this big maple tree across the street oh, that's so sad well i'm very excited that the tech uh issues have been resolved. It feels kind of like magic to me. I don't know exactly how I did it, but I did it. So we're <laughs> up and running. Okay. So I'll just start tag team back again for the first time with uh, Kate Bits. Thank you so much for joining me on range. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> so I've wanted to have you on since the beginning of this thing. And, and it, it just sort of happened that it was in time for, for the election but I really can't think of a better time to have done it. This will probably go live about around the time the election's happening. And it's an election that, you know, fair to say that it's pretty important? Yeah. Yeah. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> so we've been hearing a lot of concern about safety of the polling locations and even in like states like Washington, safety at the freaking voting drop boxes somehow. And both real and perceived threats to voting made by white, white nationalists. I want to get into all of that. But in our pre-interview, you said you felt it was super important to anchor this contemporary moment in white nationalism, in like historic white nationalism, and our region's sort of unique place in that history, right? Yeah, definitely. As, as far as like, what is white nationalism? Why is everyone talking about this topic? Uh, and, and what does it all mean? When I talk about white nationalism, what I mean is an ideology that is actually attempting to turn the United States into a white ethno state. Okay. And that brings with it a couple of things. So the United States historically, of course, has been a white supremacist system. Yeah. People of color have been subjugated. Land has been taken away from native peoples. Black people have had their labor stolen. White nationalism is different than white supremacy because it's an ideology that sees absolutely no place in the system whatsoever for people of color. And uh, in fact, because of its affinity to patriarchy and heteronormativity, there is really not a place for anyone outside of like the white heterosexual nuclear family. Mm. And this 
is especially something that we see as a really big problem in terms of people starting to shift into this white nationalist mindset because it's eliminationist, yeah, right? right? These are folks who definitely do not think that there's really such a thing as human equality. Anyone who does not fit into their very narrow mold of what Americans should be is at risk from this ideology. In the past couple of years, we've seen a real shift from big events like Unite the Right in Charlottesville in 2017 right. and above ground organizing to some individual but ideologically connected acts of terrorism. And of course, the phrase that's now on everyone's lips pretty much going into the election is quote unquote post-election violence. Right. Um, are these groups going to be engaged in voter intimidation? Will something happen after the election? And that's kind of a hard place for someone like me to be in who really likes to deal in verifiable facts yeah. And evidence. Uh, I, I do a lot of primary source research and I also organize with communities, which really requires us to be in the here and now right. and not in the speculative future. Right. So building on history and being in the here and now, I guess, is, is where I want to take this conversation about the 2020 election. Cool in eight days <laughs> eight days from now and probably yeah a couple days before when this actually goes live right uh someone who i talked to a lot at an immigrant justice organization said you know we're not having election day this year we're having election season right so i've i've been trying to think in that mode as well absolutely yeah in any case i mean i think we are we're sitting here in spokane the Inland Northwest has had really high profile and also really deep and broad issues with what was called white power organizing in right. the last generation. Um, we've we've definitely, you know, made the national news a couple of times in the past three years because of uh, racist and and domestic terrorist ties. Uh, in our political spectrum and amongst elected officials, like obviously this is a thing for us, yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Well, and you you sent me over this uh, really helpful presentation that it, I'm guessing you give to groups and the, the sort of the foundational question that it begins with that I thought was pretty fascinating and, and maybe a good place to anchor this conversation is like, why is white nationalism a uniquely serious issue in our region specifically. So maybe we could just start there and maybe start with the history of the Northwest. Yeah, definitely. And I think when I try to figure out why this, why this is something that has been so influential in our region specifically, starting with colonization and heading into the present, yeah. is just the fact that a lot of our legal regimes were based in, um, in exclusion. Right. So... This is, of course, especially striking in Oregon. Uh, I think this is a history that's been rediscovered by a lot of folks in the current era who found out that Oregon actually had black exclusion laws for a very long time. These laws prevented, you know, black people from settling in Oregon at all. And can we even maybe even start a step earlier? You said the word sure. colonialism, and I would just like to underscore that the, the westward expansion of America was a colonial project, you know, manifest destiny, right? Right. It was a process of enclosing and taking away lands from, from peoples who had been here for a very long time. You and I both live on unceded land of the Spokane tribe yep. and essentially taking land as, as the basis for a regime of wealth extraction uh, that did not include native people. Right. It's really striking that essentially the first person to ever be evicted in Spokane was a native person who came back from getting an education on the East Coast and found that his lands had been taken away, wow. you know. So uh, these, <laughs> these entire projects have always been about deciding who is going to be able to hold power and profit from the abundance of lands in in the inland and in the pacific northwest yeah and the fact that this was kind of meant as an all-white project from the beginning you know then you do go to the oregon black exclusion law 
which was in some ways framed as an anti-slavery project. One of the through lines is that they've always been really good propagandists for their ideas. Where it's like, Absolutely. they're like, hey guys, this is a slavery free zone up in Oregon. So we're going to not allow black people to come in. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that's just, I don't, I mean, I knew about the black exclusion stuff in the Oregon territory, but it was, it was striking to me that like that was how it was framed. Right. And, and what's amazing about it is to go back and read some of what lawmakers said at the time, which is not slavery is morally wrong. Um, we think that the United States should not have any enslavement on our shores. It was, we think that slavery is wrong for Oregon. <laughs> um, it's, it's fine in the South, but it's just not for us. And for them, one of the big arguments really was that if slavery was banned, then that would prevent Black settlement in the Pacific Northwest. Wow. So... When, when you take a look at that really deep history of who was supposed to be ruling over this area and who our current legal regimes were conceived for, it makes it sort of obvious that different groups throughout our political history who wanted to take that exclusion a step further and kind of complete this project of colonization and genocide and make our region an all-white region, that they would especially see our region as a place that was ripe for that, and that they would see a lot of promise here. Yeah, and it doesn't even necessarily need to be that you're, as a white uh, nationalist, saying, oh, I know the history of this place, and I really want to continue that history. You could just look around and be like, oh, it's mostly white people here. This is a great place to try to create an ethnostate. Yep. And so throughout the 20th century, this, this has been their argument, right? These are the same dynamics that meant that Oregon was probably the, the state outside of the South that had some of the most active Ku Klux Klan organizing. Oh. Ex-Confederate soldiers came to our area after the Civil War to try and start over. This extended you know, through the 1930s when there really was a certain amount of fascist organizing on our shores. Uh, before we entered the Second World War, yeah. and that became a national security issue. It was the Silver Shirts in Spokane? Yeah, that's that's correct. There was a movement called the Silver Shirts. They were a little bit different than like the German-American Bund or some of the pro-Mussolini uh, organizing by folks with Italian backgrounds. Okay. Uh, in that they were really trying to build up an American counterpart to European fascist movements. Wow. They were mostly the strongest in uh, Southern California, okay, but also had some very active organizing in the Northwest. Gosh, I just, I just got done do interviewing Jess Walter about the, the more sort of leftist labor organizing that was so prevalent in the aughts, 1909-ish in Spokane. It seems like that period, that roughly 30 years was just such an interesting strange. It seems very different than the Spokane I grew up in, but all this stuff has been sort of percolating under the surface, it seems like. Definitely. Um, yeah, specifically the, the one thing that I know about the Silver Shirts here in Spokane is that they attempted to hold an event somewhere on Riverside downtown oh. and actually got pushed out. People were not having it. Wow. And in fact, like showed up with big banners saying, is this Spokane or Berlin? Wow. <laughs> and proceeded to run the silver shirts out of town. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. And of course, you know, that was that was a movement that was kind of um, they had a really hard time organizing after we entered the Second World War, because right. all of a sudden being pro-Hitler was being anti-American. Right. There is nothing that would have guaranteed that they wouldn't have continued to build power in the Northwest if we had remained neutral in the war yeah. and neutral on European fascism. And the point where most people see white nationalist organizing as really gaining steam in the inland Northwest and uh, also the era when you and I grew up a bit adjacent to that <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> came actually after the big successes of the civil rights movement. Um, right. And there were a couple of reasons why groups like the Aryan Nations started to get such a foothold up here at the time. One of them was that these groups that had long been arguing for segregation and arguing for simply propping up the system of white supremacy um, they realized that in a lot of ways, they had lost power, they had lost ground, and they had suffered some significant losses. 
Okay. If you can't uphold de jure segregation anymore, to them, that was a big warning sign that they were losing the country. Right. They also had a real fascination with uh, looking at separatist movements, uh, for example, in the Balkans. Oh. And we're kind of thinking like, well, clearly we can't have a functioning multiracial democracy where everyone decides together <laughs> what the country is going to look like. They literally believed that the United States was on the verge of collapse wow. because they simply don't believe in the ability of a, of a multiracial society to be self-governing. Wow which really goes back to some of the myths about reconstruction and the idea that governments that had black legislators and leaders would not be well functioning, right. uh, which is of course nonsense. But they said, you know, we're on the verge of this giant collapse. The United States, uh, the center is not going to hold. Yeah. What are we going to have to do in order to sustain ourselves and make sure that, um, that our ideas and our organizing can continue. Right. There was a big call that went out to what was then called the white power movement at that point, mostly via their newsletters that yeah. were sent around in the mail, which was called the Northwest territorial imperative. And this was simply the idea that if the United States was doomed, they would have to find the most promising region of the country to recoup their losses and rebuild. Hmm. And many movement leaders, including Richard Butler, argued for the Pacific Northwest being the perfect place for them to come resettle. Wow. So it's like if we can't subjugate people in all of America under a yoke of oppression like slavery or, or like uh, Jim Crow, we will just take our racism ball and go home to like basically just like a place where we can sort of more effectively control the way that that plays out and eventually and build power that way yes and of course this this had a lot to do with our demographics and i should say that uh not everyone who was making that move in the 70s the 80s the 90s were doing this as followers of exactly the same movements Right. You know, it, it wasn't entirely cohesive. In some ways, it just became an issue of like, we just became a center of gravity for people who were all starting to think in the same ways. Yeah. Once a few people had come out to visit from like Michigan or Orange County or whatever, more and more people began to find it to be an attractive place to resettle. Yeah. So it's it's not like this was all a, a gigantic directed conspiracy so much as it was truly a social movement making a move. Yeah. Wow. For any Zoomers listening, a newsletter is like a Twitter DM, but on paper that gets mailed to your house. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's like, basically it's like, there's, there are all these like sort of informal communication networks and, you know, and there's like, there are in any social movement, there's all these schisms and like, there's, you know, some groups actively sort of hate each other, but have like broadly aligned ideologies. They all sort of, there, there begins to be a little bit of a, almost like a, a gravitational pull to this area, despite the somewhat heterodox like beliefs and stuff. Yeah, definitely. And in terms of the Aryan nations compound itself, this was definitely a place where different factions would come together uh, and sit in one room and make some fairly strategic decisions. Yeah. Like the order was founded there explicitly to operate as a isolated cell that could use more aggressive and illegal tactics than the more above ground nature of what Butler was obviously doing with his church and compound in North Idaho. Wow. So were they like using like IRA? Was there anything they were using as like a model for this sort of like the the quote unquote respectable face of neo-Nazism and then like the, the sort of the more... Um, invisible, violent groups or? That's a good question. I do know that those who were advocating what they called leaderless resistance, so at the time, the order, and there are now groups which are very influenced by this philosophy, like Atomwaffen Division. Mm. These groups were basing that partly on the tactics of the Italian far right, okay. which was incredibly active in committing terrorism throughout the 70s. And they, on the other hand, had taken some of these ideas actually from Maoism. Wow. <laughs> yep. So they essentially decided that um, in order partly to protect leadership and in order to protect their above ground organizing, it was simply better that people who wanted to commit acts of violence go off and do their own thing. Huh. This made it harder to prosecute a lot yeah. of the leaders. 
Wow. And the thinking, though, was that just like sort of somewhat or completely unstructured violence would just speed a race war or just sort of speed whatever other political ends they had or just freak people of color out so they'd move away or? Um, there was definitely an element of just freak people out. Okay. The order and some of the other smaller groups that constituted themselves were actually knocking over banks and armored cars. Oh, yeah. Uh, as a funding source. <laughs> There was like a play that was at stage left a couple of years ago about that, I think, right? Yeah, yeah, that's that's correct. So partly it was strategic in order to get cash on hand. Okay. It does take money to run a far-right movement. Right. Partly, I think it's very instructive what some of the targets were in our town during those times. Oh, yeah. What immediately comes to mind for me is always the series of attempted bombings at City Hall. Right. Spokesman Review Building, yeah. Planned Parenthood. Wow. Uh, if you were going to imagine what types of institutions are current targets for the white nationalist movement, whether that's through legal means of organizing or potentially violence, yeah. I would say today they're almost identical targets. Local government, the press, and um, institutions that provide support for reproductive rights. Wow. So this is like, is this late 80s, early 90s? Or what's what's the time period on this, roughly speaking? Yeah. Um, a lot of people, including Kathleen Ballou, who wrote a great book about this era of, of white power organizing called Bring the War Home. Okay. Mostly people say that the cutoff was after the Oklahoma City bombing. Okay. And that's mostly because that was like a huge rupture in in all of that organizing. It's really a difference whether people get together and talk about hurting people or talk about how you can justify hurting certain groups of people who are taken to be you know, less important, less, less intelligent, less worthy. And then that moment when someone really goes out and commits mass murder, right? Yeah, totally. There's, there's a lot of people out there who will talk about these things and prop up these ideas uh, without necessarily wanting to be the person who goes out and puts them into practice. And anytime that happens, it really leads to a lot of, of scattering within these movements. Okay. So a couple of things happened at that point. One was that uh, what we would today call the militia or the patriot movement mm -hmm. really started to create some boundaries between itself and like the Aryan nation's actual neo-Nazi style of organizing. Really tossed out a lot of their explicit racist and anti-Semitic rhetoric. Even if they didn't toss the underlying ideas, they just saw it as... Bad marketing. Bad marketing for one thing and probably also started to realize that there is some real immorality there some of them. Yeah. So they split off and began to really see it as a problem, you know, partly because of really strong community pressure on them and pressure through law enforcement. So there was there was kind of a split there. So just briefly, before we go to the post-OKC bombing schism, mm -hmm. one of the things that I wanted to, and I don't want to, this is, I'm not jumping ahead, I promise, but I did want to point out was like, one of the things that you said in our pre-meeting that was so fascinating to me about our current moment was that there's, obviously we've been, we've spent four years really concerned about the way that having a, a someone in the, at least in the White House, who's very sort of sympathetic to I, ideas like this can empower groups like this. But one of the things that was really fascinating about that time that also sort of reflects as a potential uh, reflection on our own time is these groups actually reached their height under Clinton, right? Mm -hmm. Can you talk about how the violence began to escalate as they felt like they had lost power sort of transitioning from, you know, uh, the Reagan Bush era into the Clinton era? Yeah, definitely. The orientation of groups like this towards the government is always a really fascinating topic because many groups have an aspect where they're against the current system yeah. in some way. Many of them will be saying, you know, the United States is an illegitimate government because it empowers people of color. Sure. Or it's hurting the white man in, in some way, <laughs> right? Right. But at the same time, a lot of groups who consider themselves to be broadly anti-government, they still make a distinction of how friendly the current federal regime is or is not to them. 
Right. I, I don't think I've ever seen so many both white nationalist and also militia and patriot paramilitary type groups be so enthusiastic about any president as some of them are about Trump. Sure. So I would say that's sort of new and it's sort of significant. Right. Okay. At the same time, the fact is that the federal government became enemy number one for a lot of these folks during the 90s because Clinton was at the helm. And under Clinton, stuff like the uh, Ruby Ridge happened and, and Waco happened and mm-hmm. and the, there was an, an attempt by the federal, the feds to like crack down on illegal arms sales with it, that were funding these groups and other things like, and then, you know, the Weavers, it was tax evasion, I think, right? Or something? Randy Weaver had... <laughs> was somehow involved in the sale of a sawed-off shotgun. Oh, that's right. So that was and also armed stuff. was involved. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, putting this kind of pressure on people, which which is something that, looking forward to the election, it's an interesting question of how everything will shake out. If you put more pressure on folks, it will not cause them to calm down. <laughs> <laughs> and I think we all know this, right? Um, perhaps. Yeah, when you, when you back somebody into a corner, they don't. Yeah. People in Spokane uh, know this after um, tear gas was deployed on the streets this summer. I I don't think people's reaction was, well, let me not go to any more protests. (laughs) Right. So it's like it's and this is so this is a place where this is just this is just basic human psychology. If you believe something strongly enough to sort of actively protest or or try to build power around it, you're not going to react well if you know, the, the perceived power structures are like, no, you can't do that. Or no, we're going to try to send you to jail. Right. Normally that, that does tend to lead to people's efforts intensifying. Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, I, ideologies and beliefs actually becoming stronger. Yeah. There's many people who have written on the choices of the federal government during the Clinton administration and, and how that may have affected the entire situation. Yeah. I think another big piece of it was simply having a Democrat in in office, frankly. That just seemed like a really important point that I didn't want to want to gloss over. So basically, there's this sort of like uh, mutually reinforcing antagonism that happens and then builds and builds and builds. Stuff happens, like we said, locally, bombings locally that I remember as a kid. And this was slightly after the Oklahoma City bombing, but like going to punk shows and in hindsight, seeing a profoundly disturbing number of swastika tattoos, (laughs) for example. But then when, so there's this like massive increase in, in sort of militancy and then the bombing happens. So what was that feeling? Was it like the whole movement was like, oh shit, we've gone too far or oops, Timothy McVeigh really like kicked the hornet's nest and we need to go underground for a while or was it a mix of those things? Like Definitely a mixture. Yeah. Yeah. And I I do think it plays a really underdiscussed role just how much communities in this area and around the Pacific Northwest were also pushing back at that time. Right. You know, it's it's hard for people to do above ground organizing if their symbology and their messages have have basically been exposed as being harmful. When that last fig leaf is gone, yeah. Sometimes the only thing that you can do is is run to the emerging internet, like mm. the folks who built up Stormfront did. As one does, um, yeah. Yes. <laughs> Very convenient uh, time for the internet to be happening, Al Gore. Right, and it's um. <laughs> It's also, I think, important to note that at times like this, a lot of people do just disaffiliate from from movements like this. Yeah. So in a lot of ways, the boots on the ground side of white nationalist organizing is is young white, mostly men. And there's there's quite a few people who get involved in this type of thing, uh, become a skinhead join some type of gang as a young person. Uh, And then by the time they're like 25, this doesn't necessarily mean that their politics have changed in a big way, but they are no longer involved in organizing. Okay. That's fascinating. So there, there was a big piece of that, I think as well. Yeah. And I think at that point, especially in this area where we had the big, you know, finale of the Aryan nations compound, uh, being right. taken away, 
I still remember those bulldozers, man. I, I haven't looked at mm-hmm. that. Up. I like those. I remember those news reports as a kid. You know, it was two thousand two. Yeah. So I was a not, I think so. not a child. I was a man child, mm-hmm. but yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I think at that point, a lot of people essentially figured that it was over, right? Literally, and, and well, and this is where yeah, maybe we can talk a little bit about like what happened between then and now, or then and four years ago. Like, because I, I feel like that was like people just. Am I right to think that people just stopped paying attention to it? It became all about, you know, Islamic terrorism and not, you know, white domestic terrorism, at least in the broad national consciousness? Yes, I I think that's true. And partly that is what happens when we start to think of this as as a law enforcement problem Hmm. and not as a problem that we as wider communities have to handle. Oh, I see. Yeah, maybe just unpack that a little bit more. What do you mean by that? (laughs) Right. It really helps uh, people who want to organize in the shadows if uh, most of us are out there assuming that this is essentially a fringe problem. Okay. um, And that if something really bad happens, then uh, essentially the law enforcement structures will take care of it for us. Gotcha. So it's like there's a few, there's only a few of these, you know, wackos left and you know eventually they'll do something like commit a gun crime or trafficking charge something something to like that rises to the level of criminality and they'll get sort of swept off the face of history or whatever rather than every single one of your 12 to you know 16 year old largely white largely sons are on this thing called the internet and their friend tells them about the Stormfront site and all of a sudden they're, you know, uh, exposed to seriously dangerous, violent ideology. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, one of the great things about the United States is that ideology is largely not a crime. Um, We can all choose what we believe. What that means is that it is not the job of some arm of the state to help us figure out how to protect our communities from white nationalist ideology. That's actually our job. Totally. And in fact, sometimes when the state comes in and tries to be that that arm, they do boneheaded shit like Waco, right? Which only exacerbates the problem. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's important for there to be enforcement when crimes are happening. It's especially important for law enforcement to look at this as a problem that can lead to serious violence and be on top of it. However... If we're already that far along in the escalation process, that's what creates the opening for things like Waco to happen, right? Right, right. That's a fair like point. Like if we're all paying attention once some wildlife refuge has has been occupied, <laughs> that means that things have already gone too far. Right. I mean, I think that gives that actually that framing it gives us each individual person, each individual white person, a lot more responsibility for this or at least responsibility in counteracting it, then I think the the narrative, the, the traditional and maybe the mainstream narrative, right? I mean, am I thinking about that correctly? Like this this way of framing it is like, yeah, no, it's, it is kind of up to all of us to break ourselves of this. And it'll probably be insofar as we're a settler colonial country. I don't know if it's especially the West, but we see it very clearly in the West that these structures have entrenched these ideologies. So we need to be, it's going to, it's not going to be like a one and done thing where we just try really hard and get rid of racism or white supremacy or white nationalism is what I hear you saying. Yeah, definitely. I think one way of looking at the past four years, which is when this definitely burst more into the consciousness of the average American as a problem, is that this set of movements has had 400 years of wind in its sails. Oh. And therefore, you know, it's it's not necessarily that all of us were just doing a bad job at progressive organizing. It's also that power structures were much more open to, to the far right. Mm-hmm. So can you talk a little bit more about that? Like what, what, what made it for 400 years um, beneficial for those mainstream power structures to sort of, would you say punch left as much as possible or just sort of embrace the right whenever convenient? Mm, I think it's less that it was beneficial and more that it wasn't recognized as a threat. Uh, I think it is structurally very difficult for institutions like some of our major political parties or media outlets to look at someone who presented like, well, to give a 2017 example, Richard Spencer, yeah, you know, a, a guy with a sharp haircut who likes to wear a vest and a collared shirt and say, 
wow, this person is really espousing ideas and, and organizing folks to do something that's going to be very bad for our country. Yeah. Um, it's, it's almost like hacking our, our tendencies for who to pay attention to, who to take seriously, whose ideas deserve attention right. to present that way, because that's what we think seriousness looks like. Right. And somehow if it's, if it's like th these ideas are sort of wrapped up in coded language and a tailored suit, as opposed to just like outright vitriol and iron cross you know, armband or something or a swastika armband, then it's somehow, it's not really the same threat or something. Right. Um, a lot of attention is paid to tone and, and somewhat less to substance. Right. Well, and it's and this, I don't know if this is just me riffing for a second, but one of the things that was most, and so just tell me if this tracks with you, but like one of the things that was most devastating to me about, about those protests that happened around the the death of George Floyd in Spokane specifically was the way that, uh, you know, 90% of the focus, if not more from our local officials, our elected officials, but also our, you know, our local bureaucrats our you know, the Spokane police chief himself, like was trained more on like teenagers with jugs of milk than men in plate carriers zooted out looking like they'd been in, you know, in Iraq with literally, in, in some cases, like their fingers on the trigger of their ARs, you know, like that there was the almost exclusively everybody's focus was the, the threat from these children with jugs of milk or, you know, people with jugs of milk. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that says that just says a lot about um, about threat perception in our institutions and if you are really most concerned that someone might be preparing to be tear gassed as opposed to, you know, people, people arming themselves, then, um, yeah, there's, there's just a lot of room there for things to slide in an unsettling direction. And unilaterally or at the request of somebody prepared to protect businesses from vandalism with deadly force. Right. Um, one of the things that was most worrying about that whole situation, you know, and, and I don't want to act like there were no businesses that had their windows smashed in. Right. However, one of the things that was most worrying about all of that, now looking back at it with a couple months of hindsight, is just how much some of the um, paramilitary counter mobilizations were fueled by some pretty wild rumor mongering. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if folks really followed this, but um, the the place where the streets were most taken over by armed men was in Coeur d'Alene. Yep. And this was mostly due to a couple of rumors going around on social media stating that uh, dozens of rented vans from Spokane were coming full of people with crowbars to come smash up downtown Coeur d'Alene. That's incredible. And there are people who, to this day, they will tell you that um, they actually prevented that from happening by going out onto the streets, which kind right. of reminds me of the Simpsons episode with the tiger repelling rock. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> like, um, <laughs> do you see any tigers? No? Then the rock is working. <laughs> <laughs> Not a bear in sight. The bear patrol must be working like a charm. That's specious reasoning, Dad. Thank you, honey. By your logic, I could claim that this rock keeps tigers away. Oh, how does it work? It doesn't work. Uh-huh. It's just a stupid rock. Uh-huh. But I don't see any tigers around here, do you? Lisa, I want to buy your rock. Well, but then, so here's where the propaganda value of that, though. It becomes, like, and this is one of the things that I was worried about, because there was a... A, f a video I saw, you know, just like shaky cam cell phone video of that scene in Coeur d'Alene where there are literally hundreds of people with AR-ish weapons. And this video had like a million views. And then I like went and looked up who had posted it on Twitter. It was like some dude in Alabama. So clearly this is like in these formal and informal networks, this is like making the rounds. And once again, we're is reinforcing that, oh, oh God, it's North, North Idaho is the place where patriots gather with their tiger repelling rocks, right? Yeah, yeah. And this, this is what it looks like for your town to protect itself. I mean, considering how many views that video got, 
I wouldn't be surprised if this was something that helps lead to things like the Kenosha Guard Facebook group being put together and other types of organizing across the country. Right. It's maybe not intentional, but it's serving as a kind of like thought leadership for other groups in other places to be like, oh, damn, they got the they got the right idea over there in Coeur d'Alene. Oh, and even the guy who posted about it, like got the name wrong. And people were like, where's this at? This looks like Coeur d'Alene. But he had like said the, the scene in some... In Quarter Lane, Washington. Oh, that's right. Yeah, Quarter yeah. Lane, Washington. Thank you for going. That was going to kill me. Thank you for remembering that. And, oh my God, that was amazing. So it was like, it's a, it's an example of, you don't even have to actually know where this is at or know what the hell's going on to further that, you know, just the dissemination of that information, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. That was a teeny bit of a tangent, but it was funny and, uh, and also terrifying. Uh, so what's... Like, where does that leave us now? We've kind of gotten close to the present day. What are you hearing and what is the history that we've just sort of talked about tell you about what might be in store for us in the next days and weeks and months? Um, One more piece of structural information to throw into the mix is the fact that there has been a consent decree for the past 40 years. Oh, yeah. Which prevents, this this was a court ruling that came down in 1981 after off-duty police officers were hired to march around armed uh, in New Jersey neighborhoods, mostly black neighborhoods, and uh, act as quote-unquote election protection forces. After that all happened, there was a court decision saying um, that the GOP specifically cannot uh, have poll watchers or election protection at the polls. That consent decree uh, expired in, I believe, 2017. Mm. So this is the first presidential election in 40 years where we don't have restrictions on that type of activity. There are still voter intimidation laws. I definitely encourage everyone to look all of those up and know where to report incidents if you happen to see or experience them. Is there like a is there a good like a, a catch all place that we could link to in the show notes for like maybe Washington and Idaho or like those laws? You know, definitely, there is okay. a um, an organization called the Lawyers Committee on Civil Rights. Uh, and they run a number of national election protection hotlines, um, including ones that are in Spanish and a lot of really prominent Asian languages okay. and Arabic, I believe, okay, cool. uh, to to help people report these types of, of incidents. Good to know. I'll, uh, I'll track that down or, or ask you for uh, some good links before we go. So I don't, I want to get to the present day, but when you mentioned it was off-duty cops who were doing the quote-unquote poll-watching intimidation tactics, how did Mark Furman play into any of this stuff, if if at all, speaking of uh, former police officers? <laughs> um, I, I would say that he was definitely uh, influential in, in bringing some more hyper-conservative people up to Kootenai County yeah. and establishing that as being a place where folks could basically do what they wanted and not have to deal with the type of situations that had caused him to to leave Los Angeles, you know. Situations that we might today call uh, political correctness. Yes, or losing your job because you were racist. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, that. I yeah. see. That thing. Oh, oh so it was, was it, it was not cancel culture or that is a form of cancel culture, right? I don't know. I guess you'd have to ask Foreman. Is he still around up there somewhere? I don't know, man. He still had a radio show. <laughs> yeah. Disturbingly um, recently, I would say. Yep. But yeah, in, uh, in any case, I think when we look at this year, we're likely to see a lot of situations that are really hard to predict and hard to monitor okay. in the same way that some of the mobilizations were that we saw over the summer, right? Yeah. So dictated by some kind of social media, rumor, uh, people come in together very rapidly to, to decide how to handle the situation. Uh, these are all of the things that, that give me pause in every single interview with a journalist as far as trying to predict what will happen. Yeah, right. Because the one thing that we can predict is that, um, is that the situation could be very volatile, yeah. right? And this is the other thing we talked about, and so I'm glad we're we're getting back to this because in our in our pre-production 
chat. You said, quote, there's a lot of ways to convince people not to vote. So whether yeah. that's actively <laughs> poll monitoring, like going, you know, being being the oh, the consent decrees over, I guess I can go just like post up and lean heavy on these the drop boxes in downtown Spokane, or you're just you put that fear into people so that they just stay away from voting altogether. Yes. You've done your job, right? Truly, all all you have to do is convince people that it is too dangerous or that it is somehow not worth it to vote and you have already suppressed the vote. Right. So, you know, you don't have to go through court actions like they are in Florida. You know, you don't have to like call in a bomb threat necessarily. You just have to create enough fear and uncertainty that people are like the, the, the bent, the upside of voting isn't worth the potential downside of my personal safety. Yes. Yeah, that's that's right. And that's a form of, of voter suppression that also is not as as directly actionable as straight up voter intimidation, which again, we we do have laws on that. I will also say since we last talked, there have been a couple more incidents at early voting in various states, hmm. you know, of of people showing up very close to the polls, yelling at voters. There were actually two ballot drop boxes that have apparently been burned, one in Boston where Jeez. an arrest was made and one in Los Angeles. <sighs> and these are all these little things that, you know, are affecting a very tiny number of ballots. But as we look at them in terms of what we pay attention to and what we worry about and what guides our decisions, these, these are things that could affect people's behavior and people's choice to vote, right? Yeah, absolutely. So if if the intent here is to counteract that and make people feel as safe as possible so they can continue to to exercise these rights to vote, do you have any takeaways or recommendations like vote early, vote by mail, go to down to the drop off, drop off your ballot at a weird hour? Like what? <laughs> yeah, that's a really good question. I guess what I'm more focused on at this point is recommendations for people who hold power. Um, in our system. Oh, okay, gotcha. And uh, it's been great to see people like uh, the DA in Portland talking mm. about election protection. Yeah. Um, I know Kim Wyman here in Washington just held a whole press conference um, talking about um, some some measures that they're taking to protect the election. Um, and our county auditor Vicki Dalton has also definitely been out there explaining that like it is safe to vote. Um, I believe she even recommended that people go to sleep on election night and not try to wait it out because there is not likely to be a final result on Tuesday. <laughs> so like just big time <laughs> mom, just good big, big to, you know, keep ourselves going next week, I think. <laughs> so basically big mom vibes, like get, get some yeah. rest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> drop, drop off your ballot, you know, eat a snack, get some rest. Um, love that. And actually we could all use a lot more mom vibes at this time, 100%. like both in terms of, uh, taking care of ourselves, but also in terms of taking care of our community. Yeah. So I think one of the major things that we can do is, um, look outside of our personal choices on voting and, call up some friends and say, hey, have you turned in your ballot? Would you like me to go with you? Um, do, do we want to all fill them out together and then all go turn them in together, right? Oh, that's cool. Um, yeah. Take a look around and, and see who might be feeling uncertain about that, who might need a ride, et cetera, and check in with folks. Like, be, be the mom to your friend group who's making sure that folks' ballots are in. <laughs> And that if people are scared to go drop it off alone for whatever reason, which I should emphasize, I have not heard of any of any incidents in the Spokane area. Yeah. If but if people feel like that might be a, a risky trip, both of you just strap on a mask and go on a walk to the ballot box. Yeah. Does that include North Idaho? You haven't heard any specific stuff over there, or? No, I don't think so. And uh, one one advantage that they do have in Kootenai County is that they are doing early voting in person. Um, oh. So that's very like, it's, it's more formal. Um, of course, it does create a more formal target for any type of voter intimidation, uh, but that's an easy place for everyone to be focusing their attention on preventing it. Right. right? And it's also, if you're doing it over the course of like, 
however many weeks or whatever, it's, it's a, it's a tougher target to hit than like if it's everybody was voting on the same day at, at a single location or whatever. Right. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, I think it enhances the security of any situation. If, if it's not all focused on one date, time and place, uh, maybe the only good thing about having this pandemic election is that we've now put ourselves in that situation where voting is, has been happening for what a month. Yeah. Um, the other question, I guess, is since we are, so the, the other side of having this longer voting period is that we, you know, unlike the admittedly crass spectacle of like knowing who the president is at the end of election night and everybody's watching, you know, it's like he's basically become the Super Bowl in a way that's kind of toxic. But now that we don't, we are pretty, everybody's saying we're not going to know who won the presidency uh, on election night. What might it look like or what what concerns do you have of how these groups might just contribute to the chaos that might happen in, in that time, in that period while we're waiting? If it's close and we end up having to wait, if something happens like the Supreme Court having to get involved, we are going to see a lot of people on the street. And I think that's just something that we can say without really attaching a value to it, right? It's it's just what is going to happen. Groups that are planning mobilizations around or after the election should definitely think of it as a factor that they could encounter more or less organized opposition. And I know that a lot of our activist groups here in Spokane are are super on top of that in terms of thinking through how to how to keep people as safe as possible should that situation arise. While also like asserting that this this bullshit ain't okay, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Like right. I was I was thinking about like all it took to flip Florida in 2000 was some doofuses in Brooks Brothers suits. Like they literally it was called the Brooks Brothers riot that helped like stall recounts in in Florida. Like if that's all it took for Florida, you know, like I don't know, we just have to be prepared for for an equal and opposite response because we know that the the right's going to have a response. Yeah, and I think um I think that's a very important example that 20 years on everyone is very aware of and and is planning accordingly yeah. right so i'm thinking in this week leading up to the election how can we get more proactive assurances from elected officials that every vote will be counted uh, you know how can how can we get assurances as much as we can from people who are electoral candidates that there won't be any premature um, declarations of victory, you know? That's kind of the high level stuff of how much can we get everyone to commit to ensuring that our system works as smoothly as possible in this incredibly tense moment. Oh, that's an interesting point. So so what you're saying is rather than being like, oh, well, this, the the whole Brooks Brothers riot thing was, was partially... Nobody was expecting it. It kind of came totally out of nowhere. And it was just one side mobilized a lot faster than the other side and was able to to affect the election in that way. So what you're saying is there's there's two ways to counteract that happening. Make making sure that, you know, you know, your your side's ready to mobilize as well, but then also getting those pre-assurances to be like, no, we're actually not gonna let any chaos happen because we're prepared for this. We know this is a possibility and we're going to sort of assert preemptively these democratic principles that like we're going to count every vote. You're not going to be able to like, you know, push us around. We're going to we're going to do this. And then for the people who aren't, you know, on a uh, Trumpian fringe, getting them to be like, yeah, you know what? I am going to wait to uh, I'm going to wait to declare victory until all the votes are in or whatever or some some undeniable number of votes are in. Right. Yeah. And we really are in this moment where uh, even principles like that are are questionable, and yeah. uh, asserting that can appear to you know belong to one side or the other. Yeah. At the same time, though, it is part of our job uh, as as American citizens and people who live in Spokane, but <laughs> also as Western State Center, yeah. to uh, to help shore up those systems. Um, we see so many public servants um, under really strong attack right now in terms of folks showing up at their houses, uh, meetings being packed, uh, often against mask mandates and, and against policies that are out there to protect us from COVID. Um, 
I guess Ammon Bundy would probably be the best example of this, right? At the point where the Caldwell School District can't even have <laughs> a high school football game without it becoming oh, a contested sphere for COVID regulations. You know, a lot of people who are used to doing their job uh, in, in relative obscurity to, to protect and advance our communities, such as public health officials and school principals, are suddenly really in the spotlight, thanks to, to some of these folks. And that's a difficult position to be in. So the more that we can provide support to people who are making sure that the system works uh, as well as it possibly can, <laughs> I think the better we will do. So even if it's virtual, if you have a, if you have someone like this in your life, for the love of God, hug a public servant is what yes. you're saying. Send them a heart emoji <laughs> or, or like a cat picture or something. <laughs> Can do, can do. Okay, so last thing, and then I'll let you go. The, I always, I've been asking people what gives them hope because a lot of these conversations are real dark, real uncertain, real, you know, just, just grow. So, what do you find either in the near term or the longer term, or maybe all of these things that sort of is is giving you hope as you move forward through through your work and through your life? What gives me a lot of hope right now is how activated people are and yeah. how aware people are becoming of, of some of the really big issues that lead to, you know, essentially to the problems that I, that I work on day to day. Yeah. So the more people are asking questions about like, you know, is it okay, for example, to, to say things that are really essentializing about race? Oh. You know, the, the more that people are recognizing and identifying white nationalist narratives about, about immigration, about culture, about who deserves what in our society and rejecting those narratives, right. I think the, the better we will all do. And I think what I find to be the most hopeful thing is not, uh, not the idea that we, that we might make a change in the election, but the idea that I think now a lot of folks realize that one election is not going to fix our problem. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so um, I just encourage people to keep, keep learning, keep organizing together and keep pushing no matter what happens. Yeah, I think one of the things that's made me pretty hopeful is something similar to that, where it's like I've, I've seen a lot of folks doing, doing a two-fold move. So one, I'm voting for Biden. Two, on inauguration day, I'm going to start actively pushing him in whatever direction left. Or whatever. Yeah. And again, this is where like the super bolification of politics is so troubling to me. But I, I, I actually, f I agree with you. I feel like there is some hope that people are recognizing that it's like elections aren't going to do it. 2008 didn't do it. Actually, it had a less of an effect than a lot of people might have hoped. And 2012 didn't do it. And even, and for better or worse, like mostly for better, it wasn't like game over when Trump took office. There's been a lot of really effective fighting and activism to to stall him at all levels. And and that's been, you know. Uh, that's reduced a lot of harm. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think uh, the more people realize that politics happens not in the White House and in Congress, but also in, in our workplaces, in our cultural spaces, yeah. in the streets and at City Hall, the better we'll see our communities do. Well, that's an awesome place to end it. Uh, Kate Bits of the Western State Center, thank you so much for coming on and uh, talking to us about white nationalism. Yeah, thank you. Um, it, it was great to be here, and I'll, I'll send you some links for the show notes. Thank you so much. That'll be helpful. Okay. All right. See ya. Bye. Thank you. Take care. All right. So in the interest of getting this out before Election Day, I'm going to spare you any uh, rhapsodizing from me. God knows we don't need any more of that. I'm going to leave you instead with the timeless pithiness of our national treasure, Samuel L. Jackson. Vote, damn it! Vote!